Hello, and welcome to the Here and Now podcast from Federated Hermes. I'm Linda Dissel, Senior Equity Strategist. Today's episode is a special recording of a roundtable discussion I led on December 8th with my Federated Hermes colleagues, Phil Orlando and RJ Gallo. And with that, please enjoy this special episode. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us for our roundtable today. I'm Linda Dissel, Senior Equity Strategist at Federated Hermes, and I host the Federated Hermes Here and Now podcast, which you can find on your favorite streaming platforms. I'll be the moderator today. I'm joined by my Federated Hermes colleagues, Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Strategist, and RJ Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of the Muni Bond Group and the Duration Committee. For those of you who are not as familiar with Federated Hermes, I'll give you a brief introduction to our company. Federated Hermes is a global leader in active, responsible investing with more than $600 billion in assets under management. At Federated Hermes, responsibility is central to our client relationships, our long-term perspective, and our fiduciary mindset. It's part of our heritage and the foundation of our future. Our investment solutions include equity, fixed income, alternative slash private markets, multi-asset, and liquidity management strategies. Today, we're talking about our 2023 outlook. We have a lot to cover in one hour. Now, let's get to it. Okay, gentlemen, welcome and uh, another year under our belt. And here we are looking forward. As we look into 2023, we we remain concerned about the Fed's inflation fight. For those of the media who were with us a year ago, I remember each of the two of you suggesting that the Fed would be walking a tightrope this year. And you were both very, very cautious in terms of each of your stock and bond markets uh, asset classes. And we were suggesting cash is king. Looked like the right call in a very, very uh, uh, volatile year. So I'll start with you here in terms of the Fed's inflation fight and how that's going, RJ. What is the inflation message today as you look at the tips market, what is indicated there and implied inflation, um, and then how it's evolved throughout this year? Uh, well, I, I would point out that uh, I agree with you, Linda. Last year at this time, we were very cautious. I think that cautious has proven to be very warranted. Uh, as we stand today, the total return on the, on the Bloomberg Aggregate Index of investment-grade U.S. bonds is a loss of 11%. That puts it at the uh, uh, the worst performance in the index's history, which goes back to 1976. Uh, Treasury securities are down over 10%. A bunch of academic studies have put that at the worst performance since 1788 or 1790, depending upon who you talk to. So that's an astounding storm for the bond markets. The storm was predicated upon 40-year highs in inflation that occurred at a time when bond yields were at record lows. Uh, and the result, the negative total returns I just mentioned. Fortunately, as we start to look forward now, after this brutal year, uh, we think the storm clouds are starting to clear. I think the bond market is pricing that in as well. If you look, for example, at the inflation expectations one year from today, uh, from the tips market, call it two and a half percent. If you look at it, one year forward rates over two and three years, they're all in that mid to high two percent range. That is much much more tolerable to the Federal Reserve than the 9.1% CPI that we once had, the 7.7% that we got in October on a year-over-year basis. The inflation outlook is improving and the markets are nicely priced for that. That's why we think the storm is clearing as we look forward. Uh, Yeah, and and a big shift in the message even since July, hasn't it been? 
RJ. So a lot of, lot of damage has been done. And I think as, uh, as boring as I on the equity side have thought that the bond market has been all these many years, what an interesting year this year, and maybe an interesting one next year. Phil, I turn to you here and, and, you know, uh, RJ's painting maybe some money to be made in the bond market next year. Consensus thinks now through the tips markets that inflation will reach just two and a half percent back in that two and change level that the Fed says they want. But are you concerned, Phil, about a structural inflation that remains problematic, particularly in the labor and shelter markets? We are. We, we think the, uh, the the markets may be too optimistic at which the pace by uh, inflation will come back to normal. Well, this has been an argument that, that we at Federated Hermes have been having with the Federal Reserve for better part of two years now, uh, that, that, that we've thought that, that inflation was more persistent, more structural. Uh, the Fed was sort of waving it off. Don't worry, it's temporary, it's transitory. Well, that, that, that tug of war is over. Uh, and I think we can look at things like the labor market and, and the shelter market as reasons for that. Uh, in the labor market, uh, th- there is not a lot of slack. The rate of unemployment, the U3 at 3.7% is just off a half century low. You, you look at the section of the labor market, skilled workers, their rate of unemployment right now is sitting at 2%. That, that, that fractional unemployment is thought to be at 4%. Uh, the government thinks that at any point in time, 4% of us want to be out of work for whatever reason. That number is at 2% right now. So that's keeping pressure on wages. You look at that rail workers uh, agreement that was just signed by the president uh, uh, a week or so ago that calls for a 24% increase in wages over, over a five-year period. Uh, you, you don't think that every labor union in America is going to be going head in hand into their next negotiation with the rail workers contract saying we want this, you know, plus something else. And then on the shelter side, uh, you know, houses hit a, an all time record four hundred and eighty thousand dollars a couple of months ago. Rents, which are normally up one, two, three percent a year, up twenty five percent in the last two years. When when we take out a mortgage. You know, we're we're uh, when we buy a home, we're taking out a mortgage. You know, fifteen year, thirty years. We we sign a lease for an apartment. It's it's a year or two, whatever. Those are long cycle commitments. So we don't think the inflation is going to come down quite as quickly as the consensus believes. Okay, RJ, uh, Phil's making an excellent point, and I, and I don't believe I've heard Jerome Powell and the Fed saying, "All right, we're back to transitory inflation," and the storm clouds are clearing necessarily for them yet. And I've come to learn a lot about the bond market and the Fed funds in this year. One of the lessons being that whenever the Fed starts a tightening campaign, they don't finish their tightening campaign until Fed funds exceeds uh, that of the level of inflation. Well, inflation, I guess, depending on what number you pick could be, I think, give or take 7% uh, I think this, monetary policy at this moment. I mean, do we have decades, to get there during, this time around? Uh, many of the historical um, tightening periods in terms that we, of looking you might look at, that at where terminal you see rate and what that it the might Fed be doesn't stop until they get above current realized year-over-year inflation, you didn't have something called forward guidance. You didn't have the dots. You didn't have a published summary of economic projections. And you didn't have what I sort of like to, te- to deem open-mouth operations. The, the drumbeat of FOMC participants from Powell to the Federal Reserve presidents all across the country who are telling the markets and giving the markets much, much more 
than Paul Volcker did back when, and Bill Greeter wrote a book about it called Secrets of the Temple. The Fed doesn't keep a lot of secrets anymore. It's an open book. So the economy, as seen by the Fed, is, is, is you see their projections. They tell the markets what they are planning on doing. The markets start to price things in before the Fed even does it. As you can see, for example, what happened to bond yields this year. Yields surged once the Fed opened the door to the tightening and started telling us they were going to tighten by hundreds of basis points, the markets priced it in well before they ever did the tightening. So I think the markets and the bond market are really looking forward at this point in time. They might be a little bullient or a little too optimistic on the inflation front. I agree with Phil. It's probably going to be a little stickier than most anticipate. We think the Fed is going to get to five, five and a quarter and probably stay there for the whole year. That's what they keep telling people. The bond market is priced right now for an ease at the tail end of this year. That might be a little bit too optimistic. Um, I do think, you know, how is that consistent with the storm is clearing? It, it's consistent in the following way. The yield on the 10-year treasury is 350 basis points. Back in July of 2020, it was, it, was, it was like 50 basis points. The carry that you get from a yield that is so much higher today than it once was provides some defense. It allows bonds to behave in a manner that is more traditional in the way we think of fixed income, that they can be a diversifier, that they won't be a source of large double-digit negative returns. So the, the picture is improving for the bond market. It's not the perfect bottom. I wouldn't be surprised if the 10-year Treasury yield ends up the end of the year at 375, as opposed to 350 today. So it might back up a little further. But I think a very clear viewpoint from, the, from our bond department, is, as RJ is describing it, uh, storms are clearing. And of course, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where we live, where RJ and I live, and we get storms here, but then we, then when they, then when the storms clear, we still have cloudy skies. I guess that's higher <laughs> for longer. But I'd like to go back to you before we we move on here and look at the rest of the world, Phil. As we, as you were discussing the structural inflation, and I know you didn't say that this is the '70s again. I kind of think it's the '70s again because I was around at that time, the labor market was very, very strong at that time, as you are suggesting it is. Those low unemployment rates up the skill ladder are very strikingly low. So there is that uh, ability to get the wage hikes. What I, what I think is, is really interestingly different this time, and maybe in a manner worse, is what I like to call the the uh, revenge of the boomers. I'm sitting with a few boomers here. Maybe not RJ. Maybe not RJ. It's hard to no, tell. Gen X here. Gen X. <laughs> it's hard to tell. <laughs> it's hard to tell. But um, you know, back in the 1970s, we, you know, we, we were the boomers then. We're the boomers now. And something I, I like to think of at call the revenge of the boomers, where you had three million more retirements than were planned since 2019. Since the end of 2019, 3 million more boomers retired than was on the trajectory and uh, and they're not coming back. And so that might be a difficult problem and a stubborn problem as we make our way into next year with this with this cloudy Pittsburgh sky that may extend all the way up to New York where, well, where Phil uh, goes to work every day now. But in terms of shelter, and before I should leave that, I uh, I just wanted to make sure that we understand what's going on in shelter as as we look at CPI, Phil, and versus rents and what's happening with the rents as this year is progressing. Is there some good news as that big piece of structural inflation goes? Well, as it as it relates to shelter, we we touched upon a little bit of this. The 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 single family home prices are at an all time record high of four hundred eighty thousand dollars. Now that's not sustainable. Those prices will probably come down. We look at what happened 
the last bursting of the housing bubble in the 0709 period, uh, those prices came down about 20% over the next couple of years. Uh, we could absolutely see that that happen over time. Uh, mortgage rates went from 3% to 7% over the course of this year. They've peaked out a little over seven. They've come back. They're somewhere in that six and a half percent neighborhood. Uh, so mortgage rates are moving in the right direction. Uh, you, you had the affordability index within uh, housing. Not, not only are mortgage rates up, not only are prices up, uh, but the inflationary impact on our wages that, yeah, our wages are growing 5% a year. That's great. But if inflation is growing at 8%, that means that we've lost three percentages of purchasing power. So for all those reasons, the marginal buyer has been pushed into the rental market. Uh, and, and that makes perfect sense because rents historically would only be up, you know, one or two percent. And as we talked about a moment ago, rents have actually been up by 25 percent over the last two years. Those have peaked. And I think those are starting to come down as well. So I guess the, the good news is that is that markets correct. Price is correct. And, and we, 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 we don't trees don't grow to the sky. Uh, uh, housing prices the rents on apartments are not going to continue to go straight up. They are, they have peaked, we think at an unsustainably high level and they're starting to come back in. And, and that's part of the process. I think what the federal reserve is trying to do by taking interest rates up is, is certainly engineer slower growth, maybe a recession, but, but certainly try to choke off demand to some degree. And that brings prices back to more reasonable levels over time. And, and uh, not to put words into your mouth, but I think you're making it very clear here as rent and owner's equivalent rent represent a third of CPI, I guess 40% of the core, seems clear that it's coming down next year. We definitely seem like we're coming off the boil here in terms of inflation. And I'm going to have a quick yes or no from you, RJ, before I move on uh, to the next section. And Phil mentioned the 7% maybe and plus mortgage rate might be the peak. Is that our view on the bond side that we've seen the peak in mortgage rates here for all those looking to buy a home next year? Yes, they've already come off that peak. We think that the spread between new origination mortgages um, and the 10-year between mortgage-backed security yields and the 10-year, and these are all linked, um, uh, we've already seen the wide. Uh, as I noted before, if the 10-year ends the year between 350, 375-ish, um, you know, those mortgage rates probably will, will continue to, to ease up. Housing has been borne the brunt of the Fed's tightening already. Uh, it's one of the engines of the slowdown that we anticipate will happen, but we do think those mortgage rates have peaked. Again, uh, storms are clearing, still cloudy. Those people, yeah. those, those poor young people all trying to buy a home and they think it's unaffordable. Uh, as a good boomer, I remember uh, signing up for double digit interest rates and not eating into the principal for years. So, uh, don't call me your curmudgeon, but let's move on. Let's move on if we could, RJ, and look at the U.S. inflation as versus the rest of the world and what, what comparisons we can make. How does U.S. inflation today compare to other countries around the world, RJ, and can you bring in the effect of the Russia-Ukraine war and what that has done, particularly to, uh, to other areas around the world? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, recently we we ran a, you know, just sort of scanned across a number of countries. You know, the last print for the U.S. CPI year over year of 7.7, very, very high. Uh, like I said, you know, near 40-year highs. It was 9.1 a couple of months back, so we're heading in the right direction. Uh, that said, you see double-digit rates of inflation in the United Kingdom, you know, north of 11% there and in Germany. 
Uh, and in the Netherlands, for example, it's up over 15%. So core Europe is experiencing extremely high inflation. Part of that uh, is due to the, the energy and food cost inflation that, that arose from, uh, from Putin's invasion of Ukraine, which of course is a, an ongoing uh, problem for the world, really not just uh, for those countries. Of course, it's, it's, it's particularly challenging for the people of Ukraine. Uh, so the inflation ramifications of the war have had a greater impact on the countries uh, of Europe than, say, in the United States. I would note that the inflation problem has been global. Uh, Canada, Australia, inflation rates currently around 7%. Japan, starting to see its highest inflation in decades. Why is this? It's because much of the inflation was born out of the reopening, as herky-jerky as it has been, uh, out of the pandemic. Uh, as demand resurged, as people started to travel again and consume services again, uh, the demand for so many products rose rapidly while the supply, including labor supply in many cases, uh, remained relatively constrained. That's called scarcity. That causes inflation. And that inflation has been worldwide. The Ukraine-Russia situation inflamed that inflation for sure, but it was already high. Um, one other factor to consider, I think that countries that had a larger and later fiscal response to the pandemic, such as the American Rescue Plan, that probably poured a little extra fuel on, on inflation in those countries. So, so for example, the CARES Act wasn't probably all that terribly inflationary, but the American Rescue Plan probably added to the inflation that was really already born of the scarcity coming out of the pandemic. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll uh, dig into that with Phil, but I'd like to, before I move on to Phil here with this inflation versus the rest of the world. What is our central bank's progress as versus those around the rest of the world, RJ, in terms of, of the inflation fight? Well, the Fed has hiked. I mean, the, the top end of the Fed funds right now is you know, at 4%. Uh, it's moved at an extraordinary pace, uh, faster than at any other time since Paul Volcker's time at the head of the Fed back in, uh, in the early 80s. So they've made very good progress. I think the market is telling you they're making good progress. If the market still had high expected inflation rates of 5% or more, and in one point, one-year tips had expected inflation well north of 5%, then that would be telling you the market thinks the Fed is not making progress. So clearly the Fed has restored some of the credibility that was starting to crack due to the transitory situation when they argued it would be transitory. I think this inflation might be better termed to be episodic. Transitory suggests very short term. Episodic does not. I think episodic is, is what, what we're facing. And I think the Fed has made good progress in trying to counter the inflation problem. Uh, and, and that's why some of the uh, some of the optimism that the storm is clearing in terms of bond returns. I like that word, episodic, because ep the episode ends and you move on to the next episode. I love that. I love that. And, and of course, uh, our, our uh, central bank's tightening is in a, a much stronger uh, economic situation, I guess, than many areas of the world. So we're lucky that way. But Phil, I'd like to uh, I'd like to bring you in here to something that RJ alluded to, which was the particular uh, fiscal policy largesse, if I may, that the U.S. has provided its uh, its citizens as versus what happened around the rest of the world. How much of the inflation rate would you say, Phil, or has been calculated to be uh, explained by this fiscal policy? And then what can you tell us about what's going on here with the consumers today in terms of their savings, their excess savings, what they're doing to continue their spending spree? Yeah, great question, Linda, and, and one that's extraordinarily controversial. Uh, I'll just say that up front. 
the Federal Reserve at their annual uh, monetary policy symposium back in Jackson Hole in late August uh, tackled that question head on. They produced a white paper uh, that a number of their economists uh, defended at their Saturday session. And the gist of the white paper was that based upon their analysis, uh, 60%, 60% of this uh, 40-year surge in inflation that we've seen over the last couple of years was related uh, to poor fiscal policy decisions. Now, I'll, I'll sort of jump on where, where RJ started. I've got absolutely no problem with what the Federal Reserve did back in early 2020 uh, as we're getting into the throes of the COVID pandemic in terms of, of taking interest rates down to zero and doubling the balance sheet. I have no problem with what Congress and the administration did in terms of the CARES Act, you know, literally putting trillions of dollars into the economy to extricate us from you know, the shortest but the deepest recession in history. But the economy enjoyed a very powerful V-bottom recovery in the middle of calendar 2020. The recession ended in, in April of 2020. So with the benefit of hindsight, by the time we got to phase four of the CARES Act in December of 20, and then the ARP program in uh, March of 21, uh, and then more recently, the Inflation Reduction Act and, and, and various other programs, uh, those proved to be inflationary. And I think that's what the Federal Reserve was, was referencing. So when we look at the savings rate, for example, as a result of those programs, the savings rate was up around 34% in April of 2020. It was around 26% in March of 21. Today, that number is now at 2.3%, a 17-year low, just a couple of ticks away from being the lowest in history. You look at excess savings, we had $2.3 trillion of excess savings a year 18 months ago. That number is now down to $1.7 trillion. And importantly, if you break that number apart by sort of the top half of consumers versus the bottom half of consumers, the top half has about $1.35 trillion of those savings. The bottom half of America are about $350 billion. So the dry powder is starting to run out. So what happens? People are using their credit cards more, particularly the bottom half. Credit card usage is up by 18% so far this year through the month of October. And not surprisingly, there's been a surge in delinquencies over the last couple of months. So I think the personal balance sheet situation is, is uh, degenerating uh, based upon the, the, the high levels of savings and how those savings levels have come down pretty sharply. And people are using their credit cards now and their excess savings to try to get through. Okay. Um, so now just as, uh, as we leave our Fed inflation fight topic, Phil, can you just ever so briefly tell us what is the inflation message from Federated Hermes' own proprietary work? I, I think we've touched upon it here, that, that our view has been that, and continues to be that inflation is more persistent uh, than I think the consensus believes. We absolutely believe that inflation peaked earlier this year. Where we differ, I think, is the trajectory of getting back to the Fed's 2% sort of normal target. We measure that, that decline, that trajectory in years, not, not, not weeks, not months. So we're very comfortable with a 2% inflation level. You know, Maybe by the end of calendar 24, 
but but not tomorrow, not next month. And that's where I think we get. And not the end of 23, Phil? No, not the end of 23. Too early. So that that is a, that is definitely a difference, I think, from uh, from our work as versus consensus out there. Now, RJ, bringing you back in and let's look closer at 2023 and what's to expect. What indicators do you see that indicate that really say for sure, maybe that inflation is going to fall next year? Uh, well, you know, we think that the direction is down, as, as, as we've been describing, as Phil mentioned, you know, we, we're probably a little higher than consensus in terms of how the destination that we get to over the next 12 months. But supply chains, um, global supply chains were deeply challenged. They were kinked, they were clogged, whatever metaphor you want to use. Uh, uh, in uh, Coming out of the pandemic, as, as the reopenings occurred gradually across the world, and now we're starting to see even in China, um, the supply chain indicator from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York was developed to try to measure uh, the stress on supply chains. And um, at one point, it had a four standard deviation move away from normal. In other words, the clog was four standard deviations uh, worse than, than normal conditions in terms of providing uh, goods around the world. Uh, that number is now just a one standard deviation uh, di divergence from, from normal. So a sharp improvement is occurring. I, I think one of the challenges that the Fed faced with their transitory argument, they believed in a market economy, if prices are high because of scarcity, that will invite capital to enter into the provision of those scarce goods and services to therefore profit from the high prices and the prices would come down. That's, that's market economics. Um, I think that finally started to happen. It just took a while. Uh, I think the jury is still out on the labor market. Uh, as Chairman Powell just elaborated uh, extensively at the Brookings Institution a couple of weeks ago, or, or not, a little more than a week ago, um, the question for inflation now has to do with wages. Because other factors that suggest inflation is coming down include commodities are way off their peaks, broad-based commodities, not just fossil fuels, not just gasoline. You're seeing uh, the supply chain improvement that I mentioned before. Rents are already ro rolling over. Uh, Chairman Powell provided a lot of data to show that high frequency indicators of current renting rates are already declining, uh, de decelerating from the nearly 20% year-over-year increase that was occurring not that long ago. So that's helpful for the CPI and the PCE. It all really comes down to what happens in the labor market. Uh, and the last employment report, we saw average hourly earnings were still too high. Uh, the job market is still tight. We need to see as 2023 unfolds, uh, fewer jolts job creations. We need to see slower uh, job postings and job creations in the non-farm payrolls. And we need to see those wages decelerating. We don't need to see them dropping. We don't need to see you know uh, average hourly earnings being negative, but we do need to see them uh, declining. So there are, 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 are a number of factors suggesting, yes, inflation's off the boil. Commodities, supply chain improvement um, are, are two of the big ones. I think the question now really turns to the labor market and the cost of services. Uh, and, and of course, that's very, uh, very potentially problematic here in the United States where we're a services oriented economy. So uh, but but Phil, RJ makes a very important point that the the supply chain indicators are really improving dramatically. Now, I know that you do some special work on back to school and Christmas sales information. And what and how what are those pricing indicators telling you? Are they in sync with what RJ is saying? Yeah, they, they are. And and uh, what it points to is a picture of an economy that's slowing and a consumer that's slowing, uh, but from a very elevated level. 
so you, you look at, at, for example, back to school spending, which has a very high 80 to 90% correlation with Christmas spending. Back to school spending this year was up a little more than 9%. That's really good. You know, historically, that number might be up three or 4%, but it's down 9% this year from like up 16% last year. So we're working back towards normal. Same story with Christmas spending. Christmas spending last year was up like 16% year on year. Normally, that number is around 4%. This year, we're thinking it's going to be sort of a mid single digit number, maybe five, 7%, something like that. So the consumer still spending. Um, we're going to have a decent Christmas, but from a year-on-year perspective, th- there is going to be a deceleration in part based upon the spike in inflation, higher energy prices, higher housing prices, et cetera. So the consumer is under stress, but we're not we're not canceling Christmas. We're going to still celebrate the season in in some manner. In some manner, I don't think I like that. I think I have to go and do some my own Christmas shopping for me. I don't trust the I don't trust the Mister here with even with the uh, the prices coming down. But I, I do want to touch on uh, one little corner of pricing that's, I guess, kind of controversial, Phil, and that is energy prices. We all know there's there's two sides to look at the energy patch. And and where does Federated Hermes come out when, when we don't know about supply necessarily next year or a global recession? We've had a, a very uh, sort of out of consensus view on energy for the better part of the last two years. Uh, with, with energy crude oil prices two years ago, uh, down around uh, $35 a barrel, we thought they would go materially higher. Uh, they did. Uh, we got up to about $135 uh, earlier this year, and they've come down nicely. We're probably sitting crude oil WTI at about $70 or $75 right now. As we look out over to the course of next year, there are three sort of global fundamental drivers that are impacting our uh, decisions. Number one, uh, Russia's weaponization of energy in terms of their sales to uh, their European customers vis-a-vis Europe, uh, attempting to put price caps on uh, uh, natural gas and energy prices. Uh, Number two, uh, the OPEC plus nations uh, have reaffirmed a cutting uh, production by 2 million barrels a day. Uh, And number three, we don't think that we've done a particularly good job here in the United States managing our uh, energy infrastructure, particularly uh, uh, taking the strategic petroleum reserve down by half over the course of this year. Uh, so for all those reasons, w- we would expect to see energy prices uh, amidst a cold winter here in the United States and or Europe uh, move back into that $120 neighborhood over the course of calendar 23. That is not a consensus view. Uh, if we're right, if crude oil prices, if gasoline, if home heating oil prices go higher, uh, that probably crimps consumer spending to some degree uh, because uh, people are spending more money filling up their tanks as opposed to you know buying stuff for their kids at Christmas. Yes, uh, $120 is a reasonably high figure as versus where we are now. And um, of course, that, uh, that'll have implications as we discuss what sectors of the market we think are, are interesting to own equities in. But uh, again, if I hearken back to the 1970s and I remember that we were a lot more uh, vulnerable to prices of energy back then as a country, I think over 11% of our 
of our pocketbook needed to, to be spent on energy more like under 4% this year. That's not helping Europe one little bit, though, as they pray to the meteorological gods, I guess, for a reasonable uh, for a reasonable winter and then next. But RJ, you did make a comment earlier on that though the consensus believes that the Fed is likely to cut rates sometimes next, sometime next year, we are in the higher for longer camp. We're thinking that they may not. But what what should we be on the lookout for in terms of what would make the Fed pivot prematurely? Uh, prematurely? Um, uh, I would think that the Fed is loath to pivot prematurely. I mean, I, uh, I think Chairman Powell's uh, appearance at the Brookings Institution, which I alluded to earlier, uh, he, he cast a little bit more of an optimistic light on the prospect of achieving that soft landing. Um, I think that's going to be hard. Uh, I think the Fed is focused on fighting inflation. He listed the factors that should lead to disinflation, uh, and he suggested they don't want to over-tighten. Um, so what does a Fed do that doesn't want to over-tighten? They get to a level they deem sufficiently restrictive, and they stop. Uh, and they let that restrictive policy and all the inherent lags that monetary policy faces work out over time. Uh, that's why a five to five and a quarter Fed funds rate, so long as inflation continues to decelerate, um, uh, might be a, a plateau for the Fed funds rate for much of 2023. If I may, um, it's, it's said a lot out there that the moves that the Fed makes could take one to two years to make their way through our economy. This has been the fastest pace of tightening that we have ever seen. And when you do something like this, it lets the weakest links show themselves and a financial accident is, I don't know, I've read it numerous times, absolutely in the cards. Thoughts on a financial accident, RJ? Well, that, that's where I was gonna go. I, I think that the, the Fed right now is relatively optimistic that we're not going to have a financial accident. If they were concerned about that, I think they would have slowed their pace uh, faster than they already have. They're shedding light now on the prospect that they're getting closer to a, a sufficiently restrictive level. They're slowing their pace. They're probably going to go 50 basis points in the next meeting, not 75. They've been, it's almost certain, really. A financial accident or a financial crisis um, would have to be sufficiently large and almost systemic in nature, in my opinion, for the Fed to turn tail and abandon the inflation fight. I think it's fascinating uh, that that crypto has been a pretty big deal. There have been a lot of crises within crypto and the, hasn't caused the Fed to blink, uh, probably because crypto is not yet systemic. Um, I think it's also worth noting that the cumulative capital and liquidity of the banking sector is still in pretty strong condition. So I think the Fed feels comfortable that the financial system you know, over which they, they are a very important regulator uh, is in pretty sound state to allow them to act as boldly as they have. Uh, that said, if you were to get an unexpected systemic shock, that could cause the Fed to backtrack. It also could uh, accelerate uh, the recession that we think is somewhat likely in 2023, and that also would be disinflationary. So uh, it's not necessarily the case that backtracking prematurely is what would result. That's my point. When you When you said prematurely, so systemic financial crises and recessions are not inflationary. They're disinflationary. So I'm not so sure it would be a premature backtrack. It might be one that was based upon the Fed saying, look, we're getting even more mm -hmm. uh, disinflationary forces and we now have to ad adapt our plans for them. That's, that's my point that I was trying to make. Yeah. And, and a great point as versus that 
that Arctic crypto winter that's going on now, yeah. and that hasn't changed things at all. But, but Phil, um, in terms of Fed Powell, uh, Fed Powell saying where you're going to experience some pain, and some people think maybe that's going to be a recession, and it's going to be a mild recession unless it's unless it's my job that gets lost, right? In terms of the job situation, and what uh, what do we see in terms of the economic recovery, the character of the so-called K economic recovery that you have been describing and what that means in terms of the unemployment situation, the labor force and what. Uh... Yeah, so I think what the Federal Reserve is doing is is utilizing their their Phillips curve trade-off between unemployment and inflation to try to manage this process. You know, the rate of unemployment was down at three and a half percent, half century low rate of inflation, 9.1%, 40-year high. So it was obvious that they were going to focus on the inflation part of the equation. But what about the employment part, which is the critical question here? In their September SCP, their summary of economic projections, the Fed told us that they are projecting the rate of unemployment to go from 3.5% to 4.4%. We're going to get another update on that next week at the FOMC meeting. Now, uh, two things. Number one, I think the Fed is being extraordinarily optimistic our, our work internally suggests the rate of unemployment might go higher than 4.4%, you know, maybe 6%, 7% over the next couple of years. But importantly, we've never had a situation in which the rate of unemployment went by up by a full percentage point, let's call it, to keep the math easy, where the economy didn't roll into recession. So, so that's something that the Fed, I think, is, is fully cognizant of. And, and is attempting to manage. Now, in terms of this K-shaped recovery that you referenced, th that comes down to this idea about early boomer retirements that we saw versus the labor force participation rate. Now, the early boomer retirements, I think, were a function of how well the financial markets, the housing market did over the last couple of years. The stock market was up 120% from March of 2020 through the end of last year. And, and high-end houses literally doubled in price. So a lot of, of, of boomers who, you know, they said, I'm cashing out. I'm going to retire early. They're done. Uh, at the low end of the spectrum, uh, the worker bees, if you will, uh, we talked about the fact that the savings rate is down substantially. Excess savings are down substantially. So the dry powder that they built up as a result of this fiscal policy largesse that we discussed earlier is, is starting to sort of level out. Those folks need to come back to work now to, to make their rent payments, make their car payments, keep the, 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 the heat and electric on. So we expect to see the rate of participation move up as these lower skilled or less skilled workers come back into the market to be able to support their families because the, the, the dry power that they built up is, is rapidly declining. And uh, if all that goes according to plan, that might actually give us that mild economic recession that you speak of, Phil. Absolutely. Uh, in terms of the Fed, uh, RJ, you've you've said this before, I guess. I don't know. The first time you said it, it really struck me. The Fed is inducing recession. They're inducing it on purpose. Can you tell us what the yield curve message is for the recession? Yeah, I mean, you have a, a very sharply inverted yield curve. You know, the bond market folks like uh, like myself, we tend to focus on the two-year, ten-year. Uh, the three-month, ten-year has also been inverted. That's uh, a number that a lot of uh, research economists at the Federal Reserve System focus on. Uh, the inversion of the curve 
namely being you know longer term yields lower than short term yields uh suggests that uh th that economic restraint is being felt by the current fed monetary policy that that is going to produce a recession uh, it's got a very strong track record the two tens and the three month tens uh at predicting recession over the last 40 years or so i think that the widespread expectations of a mild recession in 2023 are partly supported by looking at that market variable at the at the at the curve inversion I think that the Fed's goal in addressing inflation, I don't think they would tell you they want a recession. Uh, uh, th that, that's a no-no for them, but they have used words like pain. I think you alluded to it earlier today. Uh, the pain was a euphemism for recession. Uh, it was striking how Powell sort of walked that back a little bit at the Brookings Institution uh, appearance, which I thought was a pretty big deal, where he suggested a soft landing might actually uh, be, be more probable than I think previously people had thought. That said, I think the recession is 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 the odds-on bet more likely than not in 2023, just because monetary policy is an extremely blunt instrument. The curve inversion is telling you that the recession is highly likely, uh, better more likely than not in in the year to come. Okay, that's the uh, the bond market. The bond market, as we know, Phil is very uh, has a very long history of being pretty accurate as versus the stock market. As we look at the economy and we look at the ism indexes for both manufacturing and services and of course the regionals um i i presume there that you would agree they are suggesting there's going to be a recession and perhaps a mild one would you agree with that and uh and did you uh, and in terms of the housing complex what you think in terms of what will the average price of homes fall to if indeed we're having a mild recession. So we, we always follow the lead of our more erudite uh, bond colleagues. So RJ directionally is absolutely right. Uh, I'd look at the leading economic indicators, the LEIs, which are now down uh, negative territory eight months in a row, nine months out of the last 10. Uh, you go back and look at the last, oh, I don't know, 75 years of data. Whenever we've seen a, a pattern like this from the LEI, with 100% accuracy, that's been a very reliable recession indicator. Uh, you look at manufacturing, the ISMs uh, for manufacturing, which was in the mid 60s last year, has dropped below 50 now, we're at 49. Uh, we're not in recession yet, but typically when you get into that mid 40s, that's suggesting recession. The six regional Fed indices that we look at, Philly Fed, Empire, Chicago, et cetera, uh, are all sitting at two-year lows right now. Contrast that with where we are in the ISM services index. That's very strong. That's in the mid-50s, up around 55 or 56. So there's a clear dichotomy between sort of the manufacturing and goods portion of the economy, which is in tough shape, the services portion of the economy, which, uh, you know, which is in, in, in pretty good shape. So for all those reasons, I, I do believe that uh, I think RJ's right. We agree with him. We are sort of on a glide path in a recession. At this point, we'd like to think it's going to be a relatively mild recession, but we don't know if there are going to be any exogenous shocks to the system that will you know, make an alteration in that forecast. And, and now before we move into our own suggestions for where pockets of value might be and what our forecasts are next year, before we do that, Phil, we are suggesting there's a mild recession next year. As far as my research says, 100% of CEOs, 100% of people in the investment community think that there's going to be a recession next year. Why then is this being priced into the market? And if not, why then is the S&P recently doing a FOMO trade and 4,000 S&P? 
Well, we, we've seen a bunch of these uh, 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 bear market rallies over the course of the year. The big one was in the summer from mid-June into mid-August. The stock market was up 19%. That was a head fake in our view. And ultimately, the stock market came back and retraced that move and went lower. More recently, from uh, mid-October into last week, uh, we had about a 17.5% uh, typical seasonal midterm election rally. Uh, we, we, again, we don't think the fundamentals support that longer term. Uh, we understand sort of the sigh of relief rally change in control, divided government and all of that. We think ultimately fundamentals win out. So we're, we're expecting that there will be a retracement uh, back to those mid-October lows. That was around the 3,500 level, maybe a little lower. As we get into the fourth quarter earnings season uh, over the next month or so, uh, we think fourth quarter earnings are going to be, you know, a little choppy, a little guidance, a little weaker. Uh, and so we would expect to see uh, uh, you know, the market begin to focus on this, you know, recession question with lower economic growth, lower earnings. Ultimately, we think that is, will be reflected in lower stock prices. So that could be our gift for this year, the ability to, to sell before the lower stock prices. Merry Christmas. Okay. okay. Um, RJ, let's now talk about opportunities as we see them from the bond aspect uh, next year. You made uh, several comments during our talk today that we saw the worst bond market, I guess you, you alluded to the 1970s and then, and then maybe even the 1700s, I think you may, you may have alluded to, maybe sets us up for some good opportunities next year. But then also with the notion that Federated Hermes view is that inflation will be more stubborn than maybe the market is pricing into next year, what then are the opportunities for next year? Is cash as much king going into 23 as it was in 22 for you? No, no, I think cash ca cash provided a positive nominal return when stocks and bonds were posting you know, deeply negative returns. That's what the king is. Um, I think if you look into 2023, uh, yes, our firm thinks inflation is probably gonna be a little more stubborn than the market, but yes, we think it's coming down. If it doesn't come down fast enough, the Fed holds a plateau at 5%. That merely increases the chances of recession as 2023 unfolds, right? So uh, the short end of the curve, ca cash rates are going to continue to rise, and that's great for cash investors. But I think it's time now to start legging out of cash and, and, and moving into bonds because you're going to get some price upside in the year or the 18 months to come. That, that's the over, over, overarching point. We don't think we're going to come out of this rapid Fed tightening unscathed. A slowing economy is uh, is the recipe for disinflation, is the recipe for better bond returns. Uh, currently, uh, if you look out uh, at the 10-year Treasury, you have a 10-year Treasury yield called around 350. Uh, you would need yields to back up you know, about another 50 basis points for that bond to return zero. That's a vastly different world when the 10-year Treasury yielded 50-some basis points in July of 2020, or about 100 basis points back in, uh, in, uh, in 2021. You now have the cushion of income because the corollary or the result of the worst bond market since the 1780s, 1790s, is that you're buying an asset that's much cheaper in our business, you want to buy low, not buy high. And I think now you have the opportunity to do that for high quality bonds. 
the worst return since 1976 is because the Bloomberg index only goes back to 1976. <laughs> but it is the worst return in over 200 plus years. If inflation reaccelerates, a lot of what I said isn't going to work. Because if inflation reaccelerates, then yeah, cash is going to be a little bit better than bonds in the very near term. On the other hand, if inflation reaccelerates, the Fed will just tighten more. That will increase the prospects of recession. And again, bonds will have a better return in the year to come than in the year we just passed. And it still would likely be you know, low single digit positive. I think personally, risk assets would struggle in a scenario like that. If the CPI in the coming week and the coming months starts to go back up at 8% year over year, 9% year over year, personally, I think risk assets would struggle very mightily with that. Stocks wouldn't like it. High yield bonds wouldn't like it. But investment grade, high, excuse me, high quality treasury securities out the curve, yeah, they'll reprice somewhat higher. But I think over time, that's going to attract investors because you're merely increasing the risks of recession as the Fed keeps fighting more aggressively. So, RJ, I think I hear you saying a leg into bonds and you like high quality. When when should we go after those juicy high yield bond returns? So we've gone underweight and we have been underweight for quite some time. And it's been wrong lately in the last six to eight weeks, for sure. We've been underweight high yield. We've been underweight investment grade corporates. The average credit quality for investment grade corporate bonds in the U.S. is triple B. Those are not high quality securities. Those are our lower quality investment grade securities. And our view is that with a recession being more likely than not, spreads are not wide enough to compensate you for that outcome. Uh, as a result, we've reduced our weights. We, didn't, we don't own none, but we've reduced our weights in our multi-sector portfolios. We've taken that money, we've bought treasuries, we've bought mortgage-backed securities, and we've put our durations at neutral. Uh, that uh, is a big change from where we were uh, for much of the year, where our durations were at times as short as in the 80, mid-80s relative to... Uh, uh, our index and, and and for much of the time in the in the 90s relative to index now we're at neutral so we don't we think it's premature to start chasing the higher yielding lower risk excuse me lower quality buckets of the bond market until spreads are wider starting to compensate you for that risk of recession okay great and then moving over to you Phil our expectation for earnings versus consensus is much lower into next year even though we still see a, a modest, contraction in GDP. Uh, what is our theme for equities for the year 2023? Well, you know, I guess we've got to sort of start understanding that when we came out of the bottom of the pandemic in March of 2020, we were we were all in on growth stocks and, and growth stocks had a phenomenal run uh, from March of 2020 into Labor Day of 2020, so much so that the valuations in our view had gotten completely out of whack. And we took growth stocks, technology, for example, uh, down from, from an overweight to an underweight and, and elevated value at that time. Uh, and, and that's a trade that, that has worked well over the course of the last you know, two years uh, through 21 and, and 22, and we think has legs into calendar 23. So uh, areas like uh, energy, uh, consumer staples, uh, utilities, healthcare, uh, what we refer to as the sort of the stable demand categories, regardless of how well or how poorly the economy performs in calendar 23, uh, th there will be consistent demand for the products and services of those categories. Uh, those stocks tend to be cheaper. They tend to have higher dividend yields. And, and, and we think that that's really a, a good place to, 
sort of hunker down and, and preserve some capital as we wait for some clarity on, on this giant cloud regarding inflation and, and ultimately uh, the Fed's monetary policy response to it. So, okay, so Phil, so in keeping with that, sounds like uh, we're keeping uh, defense on the field here in terms of, of our suggestions and also, I guess, looking for pockets of income, even in the equity side. So diversified income maybe is an overall theme here um, in what could be, I don't know, what do you think, Phil, a range bond market? I see that our year-end target for the S&P for this year was 3,900. That's looking really, really good right now. What is our S&P target for the end of next year based on uh, our outlook? So, so our target for the end of next year is 4,000. Uh, but we, we, we think there's a decline coming first. And, and that's the unraveling of this uh, bear market bounce that we've seen uh, uh, relating to the, the midterm election cycle. Stocks rallied from about the 3,500 level to about the 4,100 level over about a seven-week period from mid-October into last week. We think that that's starting to come off the boil. Uh, we very much would expect to see a retracement uh, back to that 3,500 level in coming months based upon slower economic growth, slower corporate earnings growth, uh, maybe even a level slightly below that. But if, we, as, if, we, if we're right that uh, the economy bottoms, perhaps we actually go into the recession at some point in the second half of the year next year, uh, the equity market tends to bottom out as we go into recession and against to, to price in the eventual uh, exit from recession based upon the expectation of more accommodative monetary policy somewhere down the cycle. So that would allow the market, we think, to get back to that 4,000 level by the end of next year uh, after having gone back and, and tested 3,500, 3,400 or something like that, maybe in the summer and early fall months. So we think it's going to be a choppy year, roller coaster kind of year. We're at 4,000 now. We end the year at 4,000, but there's a lot of stuff that's probably going to happen in the middle of the year. Okay. That, that, don't go to sleep. You can, you can potentially make some, some money in through there. And as we, as we then kind of summarize in these last few minutes for our group, and many thanks for our group for listening in today, today our GDP forecast, Phil, for next year, our earnings per share estimate for next year, and uh, S&P target, you said 4,000 PE ratios. What do we think for next year? We generated GDP growth last year of about 6%. That number this year will be around 2%. That number next year will be around break even, uh, possibly slightly negative, possibly slightly positive. So you can see there's a clear downshift or trajectory of slower growth. In terms of corporate earnings, uh, we have cut our S&P 500 earnings estimate for next year down to $200 uh, versus our forecast for 220 this year. So we're looking at a 10% decline in earnings year on year. The consensus was up around $250 in the summer of this year, June, July. That number's down to $235 now, but, but still substantially above our number. So if we're right, that the economy continues to slow and that corporate managers you know, bring their 
guidance and their forecast down, there could be another significant leg down in corporate earnings over the course of the next year. We don't think that's in the market yet. And, and that potentially will serve as the, the catalyst to, to you know, have stocks go back and retrace that, that mid-October bottom we talked about at about the 3,500 level. And I've known Phil for many years, and he's generally quite an upbeat fellow. Once again, I don't know. I'm looking, I'm looking at RJ. He's my upbeat fellow for this time around. RJ, can you tell us, for the year end 2023, what is our inflation target, our expectation for the 10-year bond will be, and our Fed funds target for the end of 23? What do you think? So the Fed funds for the end of 2023, um, personally, I think the Fed is is uh, more apt to get to five and to stay there. I think uh, the the 10-year could be heavily inverted to that to the to the Fed funds target at that time. Uh, you know, it could be as low as three and a quarter, or currently where it is right around now, three fifty. You know, why is that? It's because the 10 year reflects the cumulative expectation of the Fed funds rate over the holding period of 10 years. Uh, and the idea that the Fed is going to hold at five while inflation is coming down and the economy is experiencing, uh, you know, basically a couple of negative quarters and zero growth in the calendar year, eventually the market's expecting eases over that, uh, that horizon. So you can have a bond, uh, a 10-year uh, yield that is significantly inverted to the, to the Fed funds rate. Um, on the inflation side, look, the, the confidence intervals are extremely wide on inflation. Uh, I think the, the macro committee that Phil chairs, the number, correct me if I'm wrong, Phil, is four for yep. the CPI. Yep. Uh, that's the headline CPI or the core? Uh, core. That's the core, that's what I thought. Um, and, and I think uh, I would probably put it in the in the, in the the mid three handles myself. I think we're going to be seeing, as a member of that committee, I vote, uh, and I'm a little less than the committee's number. I think we'll be seeing a little bit more disinflation than the number suggests, but that's not a two handle. So, uh, so I agree with Phil that, uh, inflation is slowing, uh, and it's not fast enough for the for the market's expectation, but it's heading in the right direction. And just to close us up, thank you very much, RJ. And just to close us up, Phil, in terms of our suggested, I know, uh, I know, RJ suggested where he thought there were some pockets of value over in the uh, in the bond market. Overall, recommended sectors, size, regions for next year. And just to close us up, thank you very much, RJ. And just to close us up, Phil. In terms of our suggested, I know, uh, I know RJ suggested where he thought there were some pockets of value over in the uh, in the bond market. Overall, recommended sectors, size, regions for next year. Ever uh, so briefly, please. So, so we ended last year with a five percent equity overweight, our forty-eight hundred target. Over the course of this year, we've cut that to a one percent underweight uh, with a with a four thousand target. Uh, again, we like the defensive sectors, uh, energy, healthcare, consumer staples, utilities, lower PE, higher dividend yielding sectors. Uh, we're overweight value, we're underweight growth, uh, and we've got a lot of cash in the portfolio. Cash is a real asset class now yielding, you know, three, four percent. So we're still playing defense, hunker down, wait for some clarity. Great. That's our time for today. Thank you, Phil and RJ, for your insights, and thank you to all of the attendees for joining us. And thank you to our listeners. We look forward to you joining us again on the Federated Hermes Here and Now podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, we invite you to subscribe to the Federated Hermes channel to get every Here and Now episode, plus our other series, Amplified and Fundamentals, 
for a global perspective on the issues, challenges, and trends shaping the investment landscape. I also encourage you to subscribe to our Insights email updates for the latest market commentary from the many great minds at Federated Hermes and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Views are as of December 8th, 2022 and are subject to change based on market conditions and other factors. These views should not be construed as a recommendation for any specific security or sector. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Bond prices are sensitive to changes in interest rates and a rise in interest rates can cause a decline in their prices. High yield, lower rated securities generally entail greater market credit slash default and liquidity risks and may be more volatile than investment grade securities. Due to their relatively high valuations, growth stocks are typically more volatile than value stocks. Value stocks tend to have higher dividends and thus have a higher income-related component in their total return than growth stocks. Value stocks also may lag growth stocks in performance, particularly in late stages of market advance. There are no guarantees that dividend-paying stocks will continue to pay dividends. In addition, dividend-paying stocks may not experience the same capital appreciation potential as non-dividend-paying stocks. Diversification does not assure a profit nor protect against loss. Phillips Curve, an economic model that portrays an inverse relationship between the level of unemployment and inflation on a historical basis, but has come under doubt in recent decades. The U3 unemployment rate is the most commonly reported rate in the US, representing the number of unemployed people actively seeking a job. Consumer Price Index, CPI, a measure of inflation at the retail level. Gross domestic product, GDP, is a broad measure of the economy that measures the retail value of goods and services produced in a country. The Institute of Supply Management, ISM, Non-Manufacturing Index is a composite forward-looking index derived from a monthly survey of U.S. businesses. S&P 500 Index, an unmanaged capitalization-weighted index of 500 stocks designated to measure performance of the broad domestic economy through changes in the aggregate market value of 500 stocks representing all major industries. Indexes are unmanaged and investments cannot be made in an index. FOMC stands for Federal Open Market Committee. Yield Curve graph showing the comparative yields of securities in a particular class according to maturity. Securities on the long end of the yield curve have longer maturities. Credit ratings of A or better are considered to be high credit quality. Credit ratings of BBB are good credit quality and the lowest category of investment grade credit ratings of BB and below are lower rated credit securities, junk bonds, and credit ratings of CCC or below have high default risk. Federated Advisory Services Company.